Hey, hi. Thank you.
the kids all in this program. Good morning. As a refresher, I think I'd like to do all of the announcements this morning. Practice my diction. Uh, please place your offering envelopes in the offering box. Okay. Andrea is still our contact number for the prayer chain. You have the number there. Days of Praise booklets are in the lobby along with Acts and Facts. And we have our new offering envelopes in case any of you are still looking for the envelopes. We will be resuming our evening studies tonight at 6 p.m. The children's Sunday school class will be joining the adult class. Please bring drinks and a dish to pass. And as we discussed last week, a new TV has been installed in the foyer. Uh, just a reminder that this area is for the use of those who cannot be in the worship service or you're having some sort of health issues that would preclude you from that. Uh, keep in uh, mind our prayer needs. Uh, and if you would, take a moment as we're gathering for prayer here to uh, look at all the individuals on the left of the page uh, under our church praying. Do we have any uh, special prayer requests, notices, comments for this morning? Anybody? crowd today. Okay. Scripture for meditation is taken from the book of Genesis, chapter 22, verses 1 through 12, and that will be on page 31 of your pew Bible.
would you stand with us as we begin our service and prayer? Deacon Donovan, may I prevail upon you to lead us in prayer. Our gracious Lord and Savior, we are thankful for today that you've given us and you've brought us out. Decent weather. The roads are good. We thank you for that, Lord. We ask that you would be with us while the message is preached. Help us to be attentive and Good morning. Will you take your brown hymnal and turn to number eight? Number eight in the brown.
Dale, I called Dale right before I saw Marcy. No, she did last week or two weeks ago. We're fine. Go ahead. Okay. Um, I like it's on 398. Go with my cup. 
Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with, with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. Will you take your red hymnal this time and turn to number 470 in the red? 470.
Our scripture text this morning is Luke 16, verses 19 and following. Last week we studied the parable of the shrewd manager. A rich man who owned a large estate hired a manager to oversee operations, but he did a lousy job. And so the owner gave him his notice. Get your books in order, you're fired. Now notice, he was not accused of thievery. He was accused of mismanagement of his master's assets. The manager took a personal inventory and concluded that he was too weak to dig ditches or to do manual labor, we would say. And he was too proud to become a street beggar. So he devised a plan in which he called in each of the master's creditors and reduced their indebtedness to the master on the spot, some by as much as 50%. This action endeared him in the hearts of the creditors, and it provided him an entire network of homes which would show him hospitality after he lost his job. Well, when the owner heard about this clever maneuver, he commended the manager for being shrewd. And Jesus made the application that the people of the world are more shrewd in their dealings, in the realm of their stewardship, than are the people of God in their stewardships. We drew out a number of lessons. Number one, God is not reluctant to praise the people of the world, to praise sinners where they do well and to commend them for what they do in life, which is right. Keep in mind that all good gifts and abilities and talents, they come from God who gives them to all men, including sinners, through what we call the common grace operations of God. So we must learn to judge righteously in these matters. Secondly, we learn that we are to mimic the shrewdness of the world in managing the things around us to prepare for the future. For a person of the world, his money is managed in such a way as to provide for himself and his family in this world. We are to use our money to disseminate the gospel 
and thus have those in glory, our future world, who will welcome us for having played a part in their salvation. And thirdly, we learn that if you plan to manage well the things of eternity, learn to faithfully manage the little things on loan to you now from God. This is our proving ground. And God will honor us in the future world to come. Well, today we come to a very unique passage of Scripture. For some time now, we have been looking at the gospel which Jesus preached by considering the parables of the kingdom of God. And in Luke's gospel, some of the additional parables which deal with matters of eternity. As you know, a parable is a story used for illustrative purposes to accentuate some, some main truth concerning life in the kingdom of God. You will also recall that the kingdom is not synonymous with the church. The kingdom represents an admixture of both the righteous and the wicked. The saved and the lost who live together, sharing the same globe and resources of this world, but who in the end choose different roads to take. See, the world doesn't think that we have a God that controls them, but we do. All of the creation is controlled by God. They will say, well, I don't believe that. It doesn't matter what they believe. God is in control, and he doesn't get his authority from people believing in him. How stupid. We have become accustomed to this parable format, the kingdom of heaven is like. Or, in the case of Luke's gospel, the simple breaking into a story which Jesus would do as he taught, and these stories also being viewed as parables. The text before us this morning, however, is different. Immediately, we are stricken with the fact that the usual story format is missing. A rich man is mentioned, nothing unusual about that, but his counterpart, a beggar, is not only mentioned, but given a name. Lazarus. It's a Latinization for the Greek Lazarus, which in turn is a rendition of the Hebrew Eleazar, which means God has helped me. God has helped me. But where... Um, where in the other parables which Jesus taught was there ever any names used for people? You can search all you want. You're not going to find it. No names in the parables. Jesus also mentions in this account Abraham, verse 22, there's another name. Moses, verse 29, there's another name. 
And then he references the unnamed prophets, verse 29, which would include such men as Isaiah and Jeremiah and Nahum and so forth of the Old Testament. So this is a bit unusual. Secondly, in the parables, Jesus would tell the story and then he would give the application as a separate entity at the close of the story. Story first, application. You can look at it, shrewd manager, verses 1 through 8, application, verse 9 and following. The sower and the soil, the tares, the mustard seed, Matthew 13. Some, where the disciples had to ask what Jesus meant by these accounts. In this passage this morning, the meaning is given within the account itself in direct application to what is being reiterated. So I don't have to ask. He gives it. Thirdly, in the parables, Jesus used illustrations which the people in all likelihood had experienced themselves. Planting crops, harvesting, working vineyards, even having a wayward son head off to the far country in rebellion to the family values. But now, now, while the first part of this account talks about a rich man and a beggar, something which the people probably were aware of, it is unlikely that the people of Jesus' audience constituted the beggarly element of society and so there is a disconnect here from personal experience. But what is even more revealing is that the latter part of this account takes the listener into a realm which I am sure none of them knew anything about. That is the state of the deceased once they're dead and gone. Say, so what's your point? My point is this. I don't think Jesus is telling a parable here at all. A parable, a fictitious story with spiritually true meaning. I think he is telling a true story which actually happened and which he alone was privy to as the Son of God. Jesus is taking us into his realm and giving us an opportunity to look at eternity through his eyes. This is why he knows the names of the players and the outcome of their lives. And if this is so, we, as the hearers, are called upon by Christ to accept what he says by faith by faith, because none of us can identify with the application except to take Jesus' word on it. Ultimately, all of the teachings of Christ come down to this. You either believe him or you don't. But I caution you, 
In this account, he addresses things of which we know nothing now, but which all of us will know in due time. You want to know the future? This is better than a call to a psychic. This, my friend, is the word of the God who was there. This is the gospel which the Son of God preached. Now that brings us to the story of this rich man and Lazarus. It's a story. In other words, it's a true account. This is not fiction. A rich man, verse 19, who dressed himself in purple and fine linen, lived in luxury every day. His ostentatious lifestyle is demonstrated by the fact that he wore the garments of kings. Purple on the outside, fine linen as an undergarment. Purple was extracted from the shell of a specific shellfish in Phoenicia. And it was a long and difficult process to get enough of this dye to color your garments. This man, we might say, was a show-off rich man. He liked to drive to the market in his black Cadillac, stretch limo, pray through the market all decked out in the jewels from Egypt, cologne from Persia, hand-tailored sandals from Greece, and so forth. Jesus says, verse 20, he lived in luxury every day. There were no calluses on his hands. He had servants galore to wait on him for his every desire. There was money enough to afford all the finer things of life. He never has to worry about where his next meal is coming from. When he did eat, he ate the best food, the choice cuts of meat, the fish caught that very day, the freshness of the vegetables, the imported wines, and so on and so on. <coughs> now, by contrast, there is this Lazarus. Jesus' account of him reveals five details of his life any one of which would make most men lose their faith in God. Number one, he was lame. Lame. Men had to pick him up, carry him, and lay him down at the gate of the rich man's mansion where he would spend the day. Number two, how did he sustain himself? He begged for money. He begged for food. Anything by which he might be able to sustain himself. So that's the second detail. He was a beggar. 
Unlike the shrewd manager in last week's parable, Lazarus is a real-life victim of adverse circumstances. He had to swallow his pride and resort to begging in order to survive. There was no welfare program in that day. No Meals on Wheels. No disability insurance. No halfway houses. None of that. Additionally, or thirdly, he was ill. Jesus says that he was covered with sores. Jesus' words, not mine. Makes me think of Job in the hour of his suffering. These sores were not boils, but as the Greek indicates, ulcers, that is, open wounds that weep. Perhaps much like the bed sores of people who are confined to a particular position for a long period of time, the skin cannot take that continual pressure in one position, and so the sores develop. And as a lame man, his body movement must have been greatly restricted. It couldn't even roll, probably, away from a particular position. Fourthly, he was hungry. The begging trade was not all that lucrative. Jesus says that Lazarus longed to eat what fell from the rich man's table. But he doesn't say that the rich man ever sent any of those leftovers out to the gate to feed Lazarus. If you've ever seen any of the street people of large cities, you might grasp a morsel of truth in them. The bag ladies and other homeless often rummage through trash dumpsters, not only for discarded clothing to keep them warm, but for discarded food to satiate their hunger. It's either eat the garbage or die. They prefer life over death. And finally, Jesus says of Lazarus that he was tormented in his misery. <laughs> As if being lame and poor and ill and hungry were not enough The wild romantic dog, nomadic dogs of the country were ever at him to, verse 21, lick his sores. When I had a dog, Zach, he would eat the foulest, rankest, most putrid stuff that he could scavenge from the neighbor's compost piles, and he thought it was a delicacy. There was ample, wholesome food in his dish at home, but he preferred the garbage. Here's Lazarus with weeping ulcers, 
and he acted like a magnet to draw the dogs of the street to him. And his lack of mobility contributed to this additional humiliation and misery. Sixthly, eventually, death came to both Lazarus and then to the rich man as well. Verse 22 and following. Death is that common denominator of all men. Rich and poor alike die. All the money of the wealth and the fact that uh, of the wealthy and the fact that they can afford the best of medical care and even the latest in technology does not prolong their life beyond the summons of God. In which God says, it is appointed to men to die once. Hebrews 9 verse 27. That's an appointment that everybody keeps. Whatever day that is for you that God has ordained, you're going to keep that appointment. The grave of the wealthy may be marked with granite mausoleum, elegant sculptures of marble and bronze, but they are just as lifeless and dead in the crypt as the poor man buried in pauper's field in a handmade casket. But what difference there was in the eternity of these two men. Lazarus' soul was escorted by the angels of God to Abraham's side, which is a Hebraism for paradise, the place where Abraham, the father of believers, Galatians 3 verse 9, is resident and is held out as a comfort to all the children of Abraham, those who have the same kind of faith as he did. The point being this, so those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith, whose faith was demonstrated when he believed God's promise of a son that would result in descendants as numerous as the stars in the heavens and whose faith enabled him to pass the test of Mount Moriah where God told him to sacrifice Isaac his beloved son, and he reasoned, I'm reading scripture now, Hebrews eleven nineteen. he reasoned that God could raise the dead. What does that mean? It means he had his knife in his hand, he was ready to slay Isaac, he was going to do it before the angels stopped him from doing it, and we are told by the writer of Hebrews what was going through his mind and the writer of Hebrews says, he reasoned that God could raise the dead. That is, I'm going to kill my son, and God's going to have to raise him from the dead. Now that's faith, brethren. Why would he believe that? Because God had promised that through his son, God would bless Abraham and make him into a great nation. Well, you can't have that if the son's dead and gone. You see where his faith reached beyond 
just the local. It reached into the future and put two and two together. It is to trust God on his say-so alone. And that is something Abraham and now Lazarus in our story did all their lives. The heartache of Lazarus' life, the bad things, verse 25, he received. All of that notwithstanding, his faith was strong. And now in death he was comforted while the rich man was in agony. Verse 25. And the nature of the rich man's agony is described by Jesus in a number of terms. Hell, verse 23. Torment, verse 23. Fire, verse 24. Which was producing unquenchable heat so that the rich man would settle for one drop of water on his tongue, even though the relief of such would be but momentary. That's pretty desperate. We are now in the realm of inexperience for us. Inexperience. Despite all of the testimonies these days of people who claim to have gone to heaven and come back to tell about it, the Bible tells us of one man's trip to the third heaven and his return in his words. I know that this man was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassing great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest upon me. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3 and following. That's the Apostle Paul. Now, if the Apostle Paul could not tell what he saw in paradise, if God said, zip it, you saw it, but it's to go no further. If the Apostle Paul could not tell what he saw, you can be sure that the would-be intergalaxy travelers of our modern day outer body experience advocates could say nothing either had they really died and really gone to heaven. Think about it. These would-be revealers and prophets who have never darkened the door of a church and heard the gospel in any way, shape, or form say, oh yeah, they went to heaven and they saw this and they saw that and they came, God sent them back to earth to tell them Tell us what heaven is like. How absurd. Even Paul, the great apostle, could not tell what he saw. God said, zip it, Paul. It's for your benefit to see it and to believe it. And as to hell, none but God can tell us about that which he does in this text. 
Lazarus could be of no help to the rich man now for two reasons. Look at verse 25. Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Pretty straight forward. So for these two reasons, number one, it wouldn't have been just the rich man by his selfish life had earned his spot in hell as all men who go there do. He was reaping what he had sown. That's the point of the idea of justice. This is pure justice. And to alter that, God would not permit. But then secondly, verse 26 to assure that there will be no action based upon sheer sentimentality, God has fixed a great chasm. The Greek is a ravine, a gorge, to prevent those in paradise from confronting those in hell and those in hell from trying to make it to paradise. Ain't going to happen. What I am saying is that any idea of a second chance for repentance and recovery after death is here forever laid to rest. Though in hell there are no unbelievers, their faith came too late, much too late. This rich man finally woke up to his terrible plight. This is the reason he requested Abraham to send Lazarus back to his five brothers to warn them of the future that awaited them if they didn't repent. Verse 27, verse 28. Oh, he believes now. He believes now that life does not consist of the things a man possesses, but his faith is too little and it's too late. As we read on in the text, Abraham never complied with the rich man's request, though the rich man argued that a miracle such as a resurrection would be so convincing as to not be believed by his brothers. Oh, they'll believe that. Abraham, send Lazarus back from the dead, resurrected. They'll believe it. Yet Abraham knew, and we should too. These are the words of Abraham. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, that is the scriptures, 
they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Incidentally, we have someone who rose from the dead. His name is Jesus. And that has convinced nobody. So this then is the story. A true story was Jesus told of an unnamed rich man and a poor beggar named Lazarus. So what do we learn? Well, number one, we learn that the present condition of people as they live in this world is not an indicator of their standing before the God of heaven and earth. How so? Well, the rich man, Jesus, admitted, received good things in his lifetime. Verse 25. While Lazarus was characterized by bad things. Time and again, we make judgments about such matters, and generally our judgments are wrong. Like the people of the world, we tend to measure people by their financial success, by what they have or what they don't have, what they can do with their money, and so on and so on. And I'm saying that Christian people are guilty of this wrong assessment. The world's standard of success has become our standard of success. When trouble and heartache and pain and illness and persecution and poverty and the like are evident, we think, oh boy, God must be on that person's case. Look at all the trouble they're going through. What a great sinner they must be. And conversely, we tend to idolize the rich and make a mental connection at least between their wealth and the blessing of God. Boy, God's blessing them. Now, I have no doubt that God blesses and did bless this rich man because the text indicates that he had received the good things which he utilized solely for himself. Verse 25. But in all such cases, the riches are a test of fidelity to God and a measure of one's stewardship of God's blessings. It's not the same as saying that a person is blessed with wealth because they have pleased God. The general pattern of the rich is like that of which James wrote in our New Testament, writing, Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that's coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. Wow, you're a bunch of crooks. These people, you hired them to mow your fields and then when the work was done, you didn't pay them. He goes on. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. 
You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. That's the rich man in our story. James 5, the first six verses. And this being true, it is amazing that this same author describes the behavior of Christians when a rich man comes into our assembly. He says, My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing the fine clothes, and you say, Oh, here's a good seat for you. But you say to the poor man, You stand over there. Or, or sit here by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James 2, 1 through 4. Brethren, God doesn't judge by outward appearance. It's high time that we stop making our judgments of people based on how they look, what they wear, where they live, and what kind of car they drive. The present condition of people as they live in this world is not an indicator of their standing before the God of heaven and earth. Secondly, death fixes the destiny and the character of all men, rich and poor alike. Lazarus and those like him who have believed God through his word and have repented of their sin will spend eternity with God, believing him still, believing and following him in faith. And, and those unbelievers who die will spend eternity unchanged as well. When Moses died, the archangel Michael Disputed with Satan over his body and won the debate. You can read about it in Jude 9. For God had sent Michael to conduct Moses' soul and then his remains into safekeeping. So it is for all the saints of God, whether your name is Moses or Abraham, Lazarus, Tom, Susan, William, or whatever. Death is not the horror to the Christian that it is to the unbelieving we know that God has given his angels charge over us to give us safe passage from life in this world to life in eternity. And we know that to be absent from the body is to be instantaneously present with the Lord. Not only so, but our character is essentially unchanged. What do I mean by that? Well, I know that glorification makes us Completely holy, that's true. Without sin, yes. But according to 1 John 3, verse 9, we already experience a degree of holiness, a degree of sanctification, 
from sin in our present existence. What glorification does is complete the good work which was begun in us by the Spirit of God from the day of our new new birth in Jesus. Nothing you obtain in terms of sanctification and spiritual growth is discarded when you go to glory. You take those things with you. Only then, these things will become perfection in you. And I have to say, the same is true of the unbelieving. Jesus mentioned that the rich man of our story finally woke up. He did. He saw the value of his soul. But it was too late. And in saying that, he did not mean that his belief in God and his belief in hell and eternity was the same kind of faith that delivers men from their sin and changes them for the better. Oh, now he's a believer. Yeah, okay. He's in trouble, so yeah. Suddenly the light bulb goes on. But that's not the same kind of faith. May I say that's experience. This rich man has not changed for the better at all. He is conscious of his terrible plight, but as to character, he is essentially unchanged. This is evident from the fact that in hell, he still tries to command men as though he had that authority. He calls to Abraham, have pity on me, verse 24. Yet never once was there the least evidence of the faith of Abraham in his own dealings with men. He had not been full of pity in his life towards others, but he wanted men to dote on him for his every need, and so again he thinks predominantly of himself. Secondly, he still looks upon Lazarus as his servant, one to fetch water, For his tormented tongue, verse 24. And later as one who could be an emissary to his brothers, verse 27. I got some work for Lazarus that he can still do for me. I can use a drop of water on my tongue. And I got five brothers back there in the the country. And and he could go back and... In God's kingdom, each are the servants of others and none is required more worthy regarded rather more worthy than another but this rich man has no knowledge of such matters he was self-centered in life he is self-centered in hell might say well <laughs> no wait a minute didn't he want help for his five brothers lest they also share his fate? True. 
but why only for his own family? Were there not hundreds more in the world as lost and as indifferent to spiritual things as they? He is still thinking in terms of taking care of his own, not the poor beggars whose opportunities and fortunes in life were far less than those who shared his family's dynasty. Yet we have seen in several of Jesus' applications to his parables the expression of the loss there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What's Jesus saying? Well, they hated Christ when I was alive. And they gritted their teeth against me. And in hell, they hate me still. And they gnash their teeth in derision and protest, though to no avail. They don't change in character. Brethren, when you die, when you die, your character and your destination are eternally fixed. The righteous will be righteous still. The wicked will be wicked still. There's no second chance for reformation. It ain't going to happen. Finally, let us learn that Jesus Christ has revealed in the scriptures, is the only saving message that men need. Dead men risen from the dead or any other miracle you can envision is not sufficient to convince sinners to believe God when he speaks. It's not. The rich man, like so many others in our day, was looking for something more than the Bible to convince his brothers of the reality of God. They believe that miracles bring us in contact with God, oh, like nothing else. People will visit the shrines of false religions where icons of the Madonna are said to weep for the poor and water issuing from holy springs are believed to heal their cancer. They will attend the meetings of the faith healers to receive the laying on of hands by which they hope the Spirit of God will come into their lives miraculously and deliver them from their depression or restore their health. But Jesus said, if they won't believe this, I'm quoting him now, if they won't believe the scriptures which tell of God, how so? Well, of Jesus' life, of sinners, of salvation in Christ. If they don't believe the scriptures which tell of God, they will not be convinced if someone rises from the dead. Wow. Do we not remember Jesus himself is living proof of his argument? Born of a virgin, having lived a sinless life, he went about doing good to all men, healing the sick, restoring sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, exercising demons from those that were demon-possessed. He told people the truth about God, his Father. He was crucified like some common criminal on a Roman cross, buried in a borrowed tomb, and within three days he was resurrected to life again and seen in his resurrection body 
not only by his immediate disciples, but by up to 500 believers at one time. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6. That's a lot of people. Yet this greatest of all miracles has been downplayed and ridiculed by skeptics the world over. The words of the resurrected Christ are recorded for us in the New Testament. Writings of his apostles, words written by them after Jesus' resurrection and ascension into heaven, they're all written here for us. If you want to find God and salvation, you're locked into this book. You can run to all the pseudo-miracle workers, the psychics, the hypnotists, the mediums of our day, and you still will not find God. You will not be convinced. For faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. The rich man despised the scriptures in his day and landed in hell still a skeptic. But the Bible alone is your path of light to lead you to God. This is the gospel that Jesus taught to the people of his day. It was and it is centered in Christ Jesus himself. There is no other salvation. There is no other Savior. The world needs to hear and listen to Him. May the Holy Spirit of God grant you that kind of faith. That kind of faith. Our Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. That's why we have the Bible. <clears throat> you want us to know God you want us to be saved you want us to repent you want us to become your children in your kingdom but all of that said you want us to come your way which is through your son Jesus who died and paid the price for the sin of his people. Heaven is such a place of purity. And righteousness. That only redeemed sinners. Go there. What does it mean redeemed? It means our sins are forgiven. Washed away. Buried in the depths of the sea. The scripture talks about. To appear no more. On our ledger book. Forgiven, sin eradicated. But that's only through Christ. Because he stepped in and became the substitute for the penalty that was due us. And we so thank you, Lord Jesus. And he here struggling with these matters of salvation and what do I need to do? And what do I need to hear? And what do I need to be believed? Oh, there's so many voices out there, yeah. But the voice of God is recorded for us in this holy book. 
It's been here for years, centuries in fact. But man doesn't like it because it's humbling. This book says to us, you're not going to make it on your own. You need a savior. You need someone to step in and do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And if you believe him, you will be saved. And if you don't, you will be lost. I pray, Lord, that you will grant us that faith. This is not natural faith. This is not faith, as I've heard it said, well, faith that if I sit on a chair, it'll support my weight. No, that's not faith. That's experience. Because we've sat on a thousand chairs, and they have supported our weight, and we know about that. This is a faith that we have not had experience with. But it's the gift of God along with repentance that helps us turn away from our sin. Bless these truths to our heart and bring us into your great kingdom, Lord. I want all of our people here to be in glory, experiencing the righteousness of Christ and the glory of knowing him. For this we pray in your holy name and for your glory and our good. Amen. Our closing hymn is from the Brown, <coughs> excuse me, the hymnal, and it's five four, 543. Good question asked by this Let's stand.
It's an interesting truth that all of this life is preparatory for the next life. Think about it. What's this life? So you live to be 80, 90. My dad lived to be 100. Okay. Let's go with the big number, 100. So you live to be 100 in this life. You know what eternity is? It's thousands of years upon thousands of years upon thousands of years upon thousands of years upon thousands of years ad infinitum. Oh. So what we do in this life in terms of faith in Christ sets the pattern for all the rest of our eternity. I rejoice today, and I hope you could too, that we'll spend eternity together forever and ever and ever in the kingdom of our God. And now's our preparation time. Now's the time to be serious about spiritual things, even though there's the bigger picture coming for the future. May the Lord grant you faith to trust Christ. Think about this. Why would God send his son from glory to be humiliated, persecuted, beaten, whipped, crucified, if securing salvation eh, was an easy thing? that anybody could do. They could just be good. A lot of good people in hell. A lot. They thought, ah, I'm pretty good. They didn't believe the Bible that talked about their sin. They didn't believe they had anything to repent of. I've talked to so many people and they say, well, I never killed anybody. <laughs> I'm not a murderer. I'm not a rapist. I have not committed adult. They start listing the big sins that they think are the only sins. So usually I say this to them. You ever tell a lie? <laughs> well, <laughs> yes. And then I turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 22, which says all liars will be in the fire. A lie will damn you to hell. Multiple lies. Think about that. There's no way I'll, you need a Savior whose blood will cover the lies. He's the God of truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father except through me. You need Christ. May he grant you that faith in this life. Father, we thank you for your word. Bless us with the truths of your gospel. This is the gospel Jesus preached. It's right out of his writings. And I pray that we will believe.
bring us to the faith that we don't have. Grant us the repentance that we don't have because we think we're pretty good. Let us own up to what God says about us. For God is not a liar like men, the scripture says. He can't tell a lie. He has to tell the truth. And he's laying it out for us. He's putting it on the table. We just need to see and believe. Thank you, Lord, for your great salvation, for your suffering for us. And I pray that you will grant faith and repentance to the hard hearts and the unbelieving this day in Christ's name. Amen. We'll be meeting tonight.